0: Shalom. Welcome to the new millennium edition of the Torah Teaching. This audio program is produced by Lion and Lamb Ministries and is presented by Monte Judah. As we recall when I introduced the book of Leviticus to you, the great theme of this book is holiness. And any Bible teacher who would lead you through this book, he would be talking about this theme over and over again. But here it is. It's finally here, kind of in the middle portion, is this powerful message about being holy. And I can remember uh, going back in my earlier days of trying to learn the faith of how just being literally stumped. There was lots of interesting things to learn about the Lord, but this one was just kind of beyond the grasp. I think the reason I thought that was because as I had matured as a man, I had come to terms with that, that men, and, and this is kind of self-realizing ourselves spiritually, you know, we're, we're just made out of ashes and dirt. That's what we're originally made from. I mean, if you go back to the original story, it says Adam was made out of a handful of dirt. Now, there is nothing, I don't know what you're thinking, but there's nothing holy or or significant about dirt. Dirt is about as common as uh, one can get. And so how is it that we can be holy if our original substance is dirt? And in the course of my adult life, I began to come to the realization that not only was I originally created in the form of dirt, but some of my behavior is consistent with dirt. So how is it that my behavior is supposed to be something other than dirt, filthy, and unclean things? In the course of this book, we've been talking about holiness. We've been talking about purity and impurity. We've been talking about sober and drunk. We've been talking about clean and unclean. All of those things all point back to trying to help us to understand what is this definition of what is Holy. And so, if you would, let me just pose before we go any further into reading this. Let's be honest with ourselves. Let's answer this question somehow. What in the world is being holy? When we say holy, what does that mean? We need a definition from that so that we can begin to work it. And then, once we get that definition, how is it that we are to be holy like God? He says, I want you to be holy. I, the Lord your God, am holy. I want you to be like me. So we need to get a definition on that and so that we can answer that question, how is it that we're to be like God? Now the concept of imitating God is one which is really very simple. It's like unto, not any different, than when a father who raises up a son wants his son to be like him. The father wants his son to grow in stature and have strength. He wants his son to be interested in the same things that he's interested in. And and if that man, that father, is a good citizen, he wants his son to grow up to be a good citizen. If If he's a skilled man, he wants him to develop a skill. If he provides well for his family, he wants his son to provide well for his future family. If he's a good husband, and it just goes right on down, he wants him to imitate him. And so our heavenly father wants us to imitate him. It's not really too difficult to understand the desire of God to do that. And in that simple example is part of the answer about this business of being holy. According to the sages of Israel, they do a lot of teaching and they give a lot of explanation about this concept of holy. In fact, one of the most common Expressions that you will find of the sages of Israel is in almost every prayer, in almost every teaching and expression, they refer to God, the Holy One, blessed be He. And they always take note of the fact He is holy. The very basis of religious instruction, of the greatest sin that you can do, blasphemy, has to do with misappropriating holiness. Blasphemy in its simplest definition is this. It's when you call something that is holy, unholy. And if you call something that's unholy, holy, it's blasphemy. It's the misappropriating of what holy and holiness is. It's either assigning it to it where it doesn't belong, it's removing it where it does belong. So we call it blasphemy. And in the case of where the Messiah talked about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, literally it's in the word, in the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. It's like denying its very existence. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is to say it was the Spirit, but it's not holy. Literally it's to say it's God, but not God. And he says, that one, you've gone too far. Even when you just discredit, you know, the very title, the very name, the very essence, when you deny the eternal one's existence, literally almost. And so these are items that are central to our faith. It's not possible for you to get through your spiritual maturity of the process that you're in and not come to terms with this term holy and what it means and how you're to be a part of it. Now, the sages tell us there are three particular dimensions or aspects to define holy. So let me just share that a little bit before we get into this portion so that we can all be speaking from the same definition. Number one, holy, the very essence of God, His presence, His majesty, and the fact that you would recognize that His existence, His presence, is starkly different from yours. As I mentioned before, the realization, we're just dust and ashes. He's obviously a different substance. What is that substance? Holiness. His very essence is this thing that we're trying to understand and that we're vastly different from it. But when we're in his presence, that's where holiness is at. Number two, it speaks to the issue of perfection And it means that it is, that holiness is completely free from all impurity or unrighteousness. The prophet Habakkuk in uh, chapter 1 verse 13 specifically speaks to God's holiness and he says, your eyes are too pure to even behold evil. You are so holy, you can't even see the impurity. That's a very interesting thought there for the moment. We know God is all seeing and all that, but, but there's something about his nature of being holy that's so perfect that even the taking in of by seeing something, he says, even though the eyes do take in, your eyes don't take in impurity even though you have the knowledge of wickedness and so forth, you don't take it in. There's none of it in you. There is no wickedness, no impurity, no filth within the Lord. He's perfect. Therefore, we just say of him, he's holy. The third, his fullness or completeness. Now, we know that the Lord is pure, but it's more than purity. We know the Lord is full of goodness, but this is more than just goodness. We know that the Lord does right and righteousness, but he's more than that. He is complete in and of himself. Therefore, we say of him, he's holy. This word holy is trying to go to the superlatives of the very essence of God, his very perfection, his very completeness that he is. So when God says to us, I want you to be holy, what he's speaking to is, he's really asking us, he wants us to have this essence of him. He wants us to be perfect in him. He wants us to be complete in him. Now, here's probably the most profound thing about this whole business of holiness, and this is the reason why religious men, I think, have so much difficulty with it. We're under the mistaken impression when he said to be holy that it's something to be acquired. By that, I mean, we think religious men think, I need to go from my present position and go and do something, and I'll get this holiness. I will have a certain behavior and then I'll acquire holiness and that maybe we acquire it in various dimensions. You know, I'll get a little bit of holiness right now and then not. And in fact, one of my teachers in my earlier days, whom I really had great respect for, tried to teach me that uh, holiness was something that you actually acquired. And that and he would instruct. uh, I remember under his teaching, he he would instruct for just learn to be holy for for one second, you know, because you're sitting, you're going, how can you be holy? He says, just, just be it for a second. Okay, now put two seconds together. And it was like, I, I didn't quite get it. It didn't quite work for me. And the idea was that I, how could you ever go through your whole day and be holy all day long? I mean, how do you do that? What, what activity would you do? Uh, sing songs all the time? Would you be constantly praying all the time? Would you be on your knees all the time? What, what would you do to be holy? You give everything away. You minister. What would you do to be holy? And it didn't quite work. And it was so vague and elusive. It was like trying to grab the the fog or something. and, And it just didn't seem to work until I came to the realization that you don't go and acquire holiness. It's something that God brings and gives to you. That was the work of Yeshua, the Messiah. You see, when we receive the Messiah, we receive Him. He's holy. Then we have holiness. When we receive Him, He's perfect. We're not perfect. He's perfect. But He's made us perfect, paid for the penalty, and removed all the imperfections from us. Therefore, we're perfect in Him. And we're complete in Him. We don't need Him and something else. We get it all when we get Him. Therefore... God gives us holiness. This talit that we wear and many of the men wear, the teaching of the talit is trying to illustrate to us this wonderful gift that we received from the Lord. The talit is a covering like the Messiah. Though your sins be as scarlet, I shall make them white as snow. It is a white garment. We put it on as a covering so that we have suddenly become covered white holy, no impurities. The scripture teaches us that when a man is donned under the talit, under the tassel, that he at that moment is blameless with regard to the law, that there is no transgression in his life before God. At that moment, he can relax. He can be at peace. He's covered. He's complete. There is no imperfection under the covering of Yeshua. The fringes which speak to God's power to do this, his very essence, his nature. And the message of the tassels is to remind all who see them that they should obey the Lord and not follow after their eyes which go whoring after idols, but to put yourself under the covering of the Lord. Only. The crown upon it reminds us it's not our covering. It's the crown belongs to the king. It's his covering. And in the tradition of the talit, the talit is never given, passed down from father to son. Each man receives his own talit from the Messiah, and each man is charged with returning it to the Messiah. Thus, it's part of the burial garments as well. And the covering of God. Under the talit is holy. Outside of the tally, you're not holy. You're in the world. Now, we put lines in it, these broad lines across. Why do we put those? Because we're trying to teach and illustrate that by being under the tally, under God's covering, he has made you holy. He's made you holy. And he says that if you cross the line, you've gone, uh, left holiness and gone into the world. And so... Why do we have multiple lines? Because God keeps declaring you as holy. He keeps drawing the line out in front of you and making you holy. You didn't make yourself holy. The only activity that you can do is potentially profane yourself. You can't make yourself holy, but you could profane yourself and move out from under God's holiness that he's given to you. And thus, we just have the clue about what is the instruction that we're about to receive. Because what follows now is he's saying, be holy and don't do these things that would move you out of holiness. You already are holy. Be like me. Don't do these things that are not like me that would pull you out. Thus, we were told to then imitate the holiness of God, to follow after the example that he has given to us. We are as mortals to imitate immortality. Now, how do we do that? I mean, we don't, we're, we're finite creatures, but we're to imitate something that's infinite. We are not to be uh, in God's men as divine. We're not asked to be divine like God. So there's so I want you to understand that this imitation kind of has an understanding with it. There're certain characteristics that we're be like God, but there's certain things that God is we just can't be because of the very nature of who we are. Let me give you just a real quick example of what I'm talking about. We're told to walk uprightly and to follow God, to be like God. What is it that we're really talking about? We're talking about God's mercy. God's grace. Those are the things that we're to imitate, even as how he has behaved to us, imitate those things. Now, God is also judge of the whole world to be holy. You have not been called upon to judge your fellow brethren. That's when you've stepped away from being holy. See, understand what I'm saying? In other words, as he's forgiven you, you forgive others. As he's been merciful to you, you be merciful to others. But other characteristics of God, what makes him to be God in his immortal element, his infinite element, you can't imitate that. You can understand those things. But so when he was calling you to be holy like he is, he's calling you just to a particular set of characteristics and features. And now you can understand why there can be mistakes made because if you get on the wrong set of characteristics and you try to imitate God in that way, you're out of your role as a man and you're trying to be God and there is only one God. So he's not telling you to be a God like he is. He's telling you to be holy like certain characteristics of me. And so that's one of the keys to us being able to do this correctly. Let me give you an example. In the Torah, the first act of God where he demonstrates beside the creation of the world, the first act where he deals with a man, was he clothed the naked. Adam and Eve, after eating of the fruit, realized they were naked. And they were embarrassed and ashamed. And it says that God went out and got some animals, slew some animals, made some skins, and made clothing for man. So the first working act of God dealing with man was to clothe the naked. This is a characteristic that we should be having, to clothe the naked. The last act of the Torah that God does is burying Moses. And so it is said, the imitation of God, the holiness of God, is to bury the dead. So the first act is clothes the naked. The last one is bury the dead. And in your kindness, in your mercy, in your graciousness to do that with others, you are now imitating the holiness of God. You're being like him. In simple acts. But it also follows through. Just between those two, he also heals the sick. He frees the captives. He does good even to his enemies. And he forgives sin. So when the Lord has called you to be holy, even as he is, he's called you to do a whole series of things to be active in all of those things that he's like. It's in your failure to do them. It's in your behavior where you differ from God that you step out from being holy. If you see a man who has the opportunity to clothe naked and he doesn't, you're not going to put the attribute, oh, he's a holy man. You won't say it of him. If you see a man deal with the dead in a dishonorable way and he doesn't take and assert himself to honor them and bury them correctly, you won't be saying, oh, he's a holy man. It's when you see the man who does those things that you say, I see holiness there. I see holiness in his life. He's like the essence of God. He has that perfection. He's separate from impurity. He's complete. He's he's more than just himself. There's more to him by that. Thus, that's the reason why we have such a a good nature. We're compatible with the idea of doing good because it's part of goodness and completeness, and it's part of that definition about being holy. But the key that I would say to you about the instruction that we're about to receive is really instruction on how to keep profaning the holiness that God has already given to you. How do you keep yourself from profaning yourself? I want you to take note as we begin to look at this passage in 19 and chapter 20, how he goes through and begins to instruct, how do I want you to be holy? He begins, verse 3, Every one of you shall reverence his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. First thing I want you to take note of, every one of you. Holiness is not a concept that belongs to certain sages of Israel, certain priests of Israel, certain men who come, lead the assembly. It's not that they're the holy ones and you're not. It's not that there's different... All of the assembly of Israel is holy. All of you are holy. There is no greater degree of holiness in you than there is in me and vice versa. God gave you the same holiness he's given to me. So he says every one of you So don't get this idea that holiness is over there with those people, but I don't have any. No, you have it too. You have the same holiness of God that any one other person. And thus he begins and says, Every one of you shall reverence or honor his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. What in the world does this have to do with holiness? What does honoring your father and mother have to do with that? Or Sabbath. You know, we're, we're an assembly that keeps Sabbath, and we've had much teaching about Sabbath. What is it about Sabbath that's supposed to be about holy? Well, let me kind of answer it simply. We started this procedure off to recognize the Sabbath had begun by keeping Kiddush. Kiddush is a version of holy. We take this cup and we acknowledge. We acknowledge before God that God made the Sabbath. He made it holy. He made it holy. And we're just acknowledging that it already is. And we're being instructed about Sabbath not to profane it. Again, back to the same concept of us. But what's the connection between Sabbath and and, and our parents, our mother and our father? And why would it be so significant that there's a dimension of holiness about honoring your father and your mother? It has to do with the very nature of how you got your holiness. How did we get our holiness? Did we go and do an act to do it? No, God gave it to us. How is it that you physically exist? It was because of the behavior and the activity of your father and your mother. I can assure you not one of you consulted with your father and mother and said, you know, I think I'd like to exist. What do you say? You guys get together and we'll all show up. It was a decision that was made completely a part of you. You exist because your father and mother brought you about. It's the same way holiness comes. You didn't do anything to get holiness. It was given to you. You did not decide, I shall live and be born. That was decided by others. The same thing is true of where your mother and your father came from. Where did they come from? They were created they didn't decide to pick themselves and choose themselves and create themselves. We were created by the same creator, all of us. And so there's a huge connection between understanding who your father and mother are and how is it that you even came to be that lines up with you recognizing the Sabbath because the world wouldn't existed and we wouldn't all be here if the creator hadn't done it. What are we recognizing? I'm recognizing when I say Kiddush. When I recognize the holiness of God, it's by God's hand and His decision we even exist. All I'm doing is recognizing He's holy. I'm recognizing He's the Creator. I'm recognizing that He's the one who made my mother and father, and that's how I came to be. I didn't come to be by my own, I came to be by Him. So there's something really fundamental right from the beginning. To the extent that if you, quite honestly, just take the, take the truth and go the other way with it so you see the logic of it, if you dishonor your father and mother, how can is it is that you say that you are honoring your heavenly father? How is it possible for you to dishonor your mother and father whom you see, but you claim to honor your heavenly father whom you do not see? How is that possible? And God made your mother and father before he ever made you. And you came as a result of his creation of them. So if you're claiming that you believe in the creator and that you came from him, then you better have it in proper perspective as to exactly how all that worked out. And if you along the way say, no, I'm not going to honor my father and my mother, there is no possible way that you can begin to get this concept of the holiness of God first because you think you get it on your own. The fact is that we are beholding to God and to our parents with regard to our very existence. And thus he begins to explain. If you're going to understand this concept of holiness, you cannot be in conflict with these two particular things. Then he begins and he says more. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves molten gods. I am the Lord, your God. If you start assigning the term holy onto something else, it's blasphemy. You cannot be doing holiness if it's blasphemy. If you're assigning holiness to the wrong place, it's not holy. So you can't be doing that behavior. Now, when you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, you shall offer it so that it may be accepted. It shall be eaten the same day you offered and the next day. But what remains until the third day shall be burned with fire. So if it is eaten at all on the third day, it is an offense. It will not be accepted. And everyone who eats it will bear his iniquity for he has profaned the holy thing of the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from his people. It already was holy. As soon as that sacrifice hit the altar, it was holy. The altar is holy and everything that touches it is holy immediately. But if you take that sacrifice off and you consume it on the third day when the rottenness has begun to enter, you've profaned. You didn't make the sacrifice holy. The altar did that. God did that for you. But you can profane holy things. Don't profane. That which is holy. Work with me in my definition. Stay with me. Don't don't take a path off in a different way. Verse 9. Now when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, neither shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest, nor shall you glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather the fallen fruit from your vineyard. You shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal, nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another, and you shall not swear falsely by my name so as to profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor, nor rob him. The wages of the hired man are not to be remained with you all night until morning. You shall not curse a deaf man, nor place a stumbling block before the blind. You shall revere your God. I am the Lord. You shall not do any injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great. But you are to judge your neighbor fairly. You shall not go about as a slanderer among your people, and you are not to act against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but you shall not incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. What's he talking about? You can profane yourself and remove yourself from the position of being a holy man by misdeeds to other people. It says you will have a heart of compassion before the poor and the needy. You demonstrate one time that you're not willing to help the needy. You no longer have the attribute of being a holy man. You will be known as a holy man because you do prefer and you do help the poor and the needy. You are just in your dealings with your neighbors. It says it's all right for you to have a dispute with your neighbor. Just don't go to the level of sin. Correct the problem. The uh, the Hebrew word studies, and this is at the sod level of the Torah, some of the mystery level of the Torah, the word in the Hebrew, hakim, the word for neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you break the Hebrew letters down into their individual teachings, you know what the meaning in the Hebrew word picture for a good neighbor is? A strong fence. You know, good fences make good neighbors. That's what it's getting at. It's saying make your behavior with your neighbor Consistent correct, righteous, proper. Make sure the fence is mended properly. Make sure that your dealings with him are proper. That's part of being holy and loving your neighbor. The Torah has all kinds of instructions about if a man's cow drifts over onto your ground, you you have to take responsibility for it and return it to him properly. But you can charge him the fee for where you had to care for it. And that you cannot let his cow run off and get himself hurt. That you must assert yourself and love your neighbor. Do something active, powerfully to help him. Because the fence broke down and his cow got out and you're supposed to help him to get the cow back and get the fence mended. So that his little ones don't get hurt, your little ones don't get hurt, and we get along. That's part of the active stance of working cooperatively with and loving Your neighbor and being a holy man is to do those things. It loving your neighbor and the teaching from God that we are commanded to love our neighbor is not a reason for abuse by other brethren to come and take advantage of you. If your brother is exploiting the damaged fence so that he can get you to do a few extras for him, uh uh. Yeah, the holy man would understand that and he'll get that fence fixed. He'll get that relationship balanced, proper, so that he's not offended and, and that there's no exploit there in this matter. All of these different things. It's very interesting how Moses points out to this. It's, it's things like, even if the man is blind and he can't see and you see a stumbling stone before him, even though you don't step back and let him just walk in there and stumble over it. You dwell with him with understanding. You see his weakness and you say, let me help him in his weakness. You assert yourself to come and to help him. This is a holy man. He looks out for the others. One of my favorite ones, the ones that has most impressed my life, the, the one that the Lord uh, impressed upon me very strongly, if, if by chance, and I, and I think some of the brethren here could testify to the truth of this, if you ever come over to my house and work at my house and I said, I'm going to pay you, I pay you on the day you do the work. Even if I can pay you in advance, I'll do that. I am not to hold back. If you have an expectation of me that I am to pay you, I'm to be part of our deal, I'll get it to you promptly, quickly. You will not have to go home. And when your wife says to you, well, did, did you get paid? We need to buy some milk, some groceries. You say, well, no, I didn't get paid. Well, uh, did, did you talk to him? Well, no, I just did the work. And, you know, he, he didn't come around and he didn't, he didn't give it to me. Well, why didn't you ask him? Well, you know, I was kind of embarrassed. I did, you know, I, I kind of, you know, he's a holy man, so I kind of expect him to come and bring it to me. And when you don't bring it to him, then he says, I guess he wasn't a holy man, was he? He's not holy. He's just a regular guy. i got to go send him a bill to get him to pay promptly, to do what his word was. Because a holy man, his word is good. If he makes a deal with you to do something, he does it. He doesn't hold back. For those of us who've, and I'm with you, brethren, I have this as my experience in my life, and I grew up in a home where this was common. You know, the home where we just don't have enough coming in. There's not enough finances coming in, so there's debts. And we're paying late. That's the reason why the scripture says that for you to be an elder, you have to have a good report outside as well as inside. That includes the TRW credit report. Are you a man who does what you say? Is that your testimony? Because the scripture says that a holy man has a good report. His name is worth more than fine gold because he does what he says he will do. And if he makes a commitment to a brother, he does it. He doesn't hold back. You don't have to go hunting him down or threaten him with debt collectors, he's holy. And this is how we profane ourselves, by not being prompt with our payment when we have hired someone. It says here that the holy man is not a man who's going to take vengeance or bear a grudge. Listen, I have news for you. In this life, you will not escape it. People are going to offend you. They're going to say inappropriate things about you. They're going to accuse you of things you didn't do. Sometimes they're even going to speak the truth and get you in trouble (laughs) because you did it. And you're going to always have to deal with what is going to be my heart response to those who've come against me. And sometimes the people who come against you are your very brethren. So what are you going to do with it? The scripture says if you're going to be a holy man, you don't take vengeance. If you're a holy man, you don't hold a grudge. Yes, you want to correct it. You want to reprove the neighbor. You want to make things that truth is exalted and so forth. But the fact is you don't get to hate the man. You don't get to to scorn him. The holy man knows that all give an account to the Lord. And he will have to give an account to the Lord. So why don't you step back, leave him alone, so he has the most freedom to correct his behavior, so he can give an account to the Lord properly. He doesn't have to give an account to you. It's just a matter of good fences. Make your relationship good. Work within it. Don't exceed it. And when the fence breaks down, mend the fence, so that it's a working relationship. But you don't get to sit back and say, well, I'm a holy man, but this other brother over here, I'm going to hold a grudge with him. I'm never going to meet with him. I'm never going to speak with him any longer. I won't sit with him. It's not a holy man. Oh, he was a holy man made by God, but he's profaned himself. I have news for you. (laughs) Every one of those brethren that we have trouble with, we're going to be living with them in eternity. So you might as well make up your mind right now to get used to it. And so if you make some vow statement about, well, I'm not going to be with him. I'm not going to live in the same neighborhood with him. I'm not going to be in fellowship with him. Boy, you and the Lord have got a little future conversation getting ready to take place because the Lord's going to put it to you real simple. Well, I want him in the kingdom. If you don't want to be with him, maybe you can be out of the kingdom. How about that? huh? You want to live with him or be out of the kingdom? Because if you're going to live here, you're going to be a holy man. And you're not going to hold a grudge or vengeance. You'll leave that up to me. I'm the judge. You won't be the judge of other men. That's a holy man. Now he begins to shift. And there he says now in verse 18, You are to keep my statutes. You shall not breed together two kinds of your cattle. You should not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor wear a garment upon you for two kinds of material mixed together. Very interesting command. Part of it has to do with, and I'm not sure that I fully understand this. If, if you and I were having a deep conversation about Torah, I will tell you there's a certain part of that phrase that I don't quite understand yet. I'm still under instruction from the Lord. And that is that all I understand from that is, is that God has created all things, put them in their proper order, and you're not to go disturbing that. You're not to go trying to usurp God in the things that he has made and the, and the ways that he does. Throughout nature, when man has attempted to do this, it's always spelled a disaster. Great harm has come as a result of our failure to obey God's instruction on this point. Verse 20, Now if a man lies carnally with a woman who is a slave acquired for another man, but he who has in no way been redeemed nor given for freedom, there shall be punishment. They shall not, however, be put to death because she was not free. And it goes on from there, and it will be repeated for us in chapter 20. In particular, a whole list, an incredible list, of um, things having to do with sexual behavior. And holiness has a lot to do with your intimate behavior. The scripture tells us that within the marriage, the marriage bed is not defiled. It's literally holy. God made marriage. He instituted marriage. He says, this is good. This is wonderful. He blessed it. And if you go in and you try to do some aberrant thing with this wonderful thing that God's created, it says it's the fastest the way there is to profane yourself, that it's a sin unto you. And this is some of the passages of Scripture that, quite honestly, I have a little difficulty reading in mixed company. I'll trust that you will read the specific instruction, but it talks about things like incest. It says, you want to be a holy man? You cannot be incestuous. That will clearly profane you. You cannot marry a woman, divorce her, and then turn around and marry her daughter or her mother. It's profane to do such a thing. All of these behaviors, very common behaviors. You cannot, as a man, lie down with a man as you would lie down with a woman. It's profane. It's detestable. It's abominable. You can't call it holiness. Some of our brethren shared with me some time back a, a church down in Texas, I believe. It was a church that had a whole group of uh, parishioners that were into the alternate lifestyle gays and lesbians. And the argument of gays and lesbians is that since God called us to love one another, let's love one another. That's the thinking. Only God said, be ye holy as I am holy, and they don't like that. Holiness that we're talking about is a very grievous concept to them. In fact, the literature that I saw that was brought back from that church, they'd taken the word holiness, and like the European symbol, you know, not it, the big red circle with the red slash through it. That was their church. They, they had taken the word holiness, the, the word from Leviticus. And they'd put a circle around it and a slash through it. Not holiness, and then they respelled the word W H O L. I-N-E-S, wholeness. They were teaching wholeness, not holiness. They were teaching wholeness, not holiness. You know what? I really kind of appreciated what they did. At least they're being honest. There's a lot of other Christians that are playing with this subject and not being honest and blaspheming at least they're admitting we openly blaspheme at least they're being straight you can't accuse them of being hypocrites because they're telling you straight out where they're coming from we are not for God and his definition of holiness we're for our definition of being whole our definition be ye like us, whole well you know there's a little pun you know about that they're like a hole in the ground, Is that's about how whole they are. It's called the pit. It's a big hole in the ground. And that's teaching from the pit, not teaching from heaven, where holiness is at. And these central passages, these passages trying to teach us of holiness, you know, because Leviticus is not the not on the big uh, hit parade for teaching, you know, in the most uh, Christian circles, you know what I'm trying to say. I mean, you know, not Levit, you know, here's all the books of the Bible, what's the best sellers of the books of the Bible, best, most often taught, you know, Leviticus is not even going to hit the top ten, brethren. <laughs> let alone even make the board. Okay, And it's in this book where these teachings are at. And when we make reference to them in other places, it's it's keying off of this. So let us summarize. What is it that we're saying? We're saying that part of the definition of holiness is is in your sexual behavior. You cannot be holy, brethren, if you're committing adultery. You can't be a holy man and do this. It just doesn't work. At that point, you're an erring brother. You're just another sinner again. But you don't have the attributes of being holy in your walk before God. You're not following his injunction to be holy. Then we go into a series of other interesting things. They're actually, they're referred to as miscellaneous precepts or uh, certain kinds of injunctions that are helping us to define. And again, as I go through to tell you, I'm still learning. I'm still learning the, the deeper meaning of some of this. All I can do is somewhat repeat some of what they are. Some are obvious, some are not so obvious. For example, chapter 19, verse 26. You shall not eat anything with blood, nor practice divination or soothsaying. I've got that. Okay, that one makes sense, all right? Except for, what about those men who come and misappropriate the gift of prophecy and like to go around doing personal soothsaying in the assembly? What's the difference between a soothsayer... And a guy in the Christian faith come walking up to you, acting mysterious, elusive, laying his hand on you. And "Oh, I, I see a vision for you, brother. And he, he gives you some personal prophecy. What's the difference? If it be truth, then there will be confirmation by the Holy Spirit. There will be a work that is going on there. And there won't be a check in your spirit saying, where did that come from? What's that, what's that got to do with anything? In our day and age, we've had many, historically, within, particularly within Protestant Christianity, evangelical Christianity, many what we call charismatic experiences. I in no wise would want to be found guilty of speaking against anything that the Holy Spirit is doing as He moves and stirs His people and woos us and draws us toward God. But let me just tell you, there's a couple of basic things that just kind of strike me about all this I've never quite understood. For example, all that business of everybody coming in, and I've participated in this trying to understand it, and you know where you're slain in the Spirit. You ever seen that? You know the brethren come up and this brother he comes up and he like speaks to them and he breathes on them or touches them or whatever and they they fall back and there's some other brethren to kind of catch them and they lay down and they, they've even got assistant to it. You know, when the ladies fall down, they got these little apron things and they lay over their legs so that they're not immodest or, you know, anything like that. And it's called being slain in the spirit. The only thing that bothers me about that is that my Bible says that when you fall backwards is the sign of being the enemies of God. That the true worship for God falls on his face. You remember when Yeshua was being arrested? When they came up there to the garden of Gethsemane and they cried out in the night and he said, who are you looking for? They said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am he. And it says, they all fell backwards. I am he. (laughs) They all fell backwards. In the temple, when something tremendous would take place, the spirit of God would move. They would see the glory of God. The altar would light up. The spirit would fill the temple. It said, every one of the sons of Israel fell on their face. That's the pattern. So if we're talking about some holy phenomena that's taking place, why is it that they would fall backwards the way the enemies do instead of on their faces the way the servants of God do? I don't understand that. Now, I'm not their judge, and I'm not passing judgment. I have a question. I have a question based on that which I've been instructed from by the Scripture with regard to a particular behavior, because they're representing it to me as it's holy. Really? Or is it? Or have you heard of the phenomena of the brethren being moved in the spirit and uh, animal sounds come out, dogs barking, lions roaring, and so forth. You know, I know some brethren, I love these brethren, and they give testimony to this. I am not their judge. I'm not judging them. But I have a question. Since we're the flock of God, why is it that every sound that I hear is the sound of an unclean animal that attacks the flock? How come I don't hear sheep sounds or goats? or Why is it always a dog or something that would attack the flock? In recent days, we had a man who came to our assembly and he was ministering. And we had given him latitude to come. He had represented himself as being a servant of God. And we gave him latitude to come and so forth. But one of the questions that we had to ask him, we sat down when things weren't working out so good. One of the things we had to ask him is, Brother, if you don't mind my asking, why is it that every shirt you wear is a wolf? I thought wolves came in sheep's clothing to hurt the flock. And since we're Jews, we believe in signs. So if you don't mind my asking, why is it every... He said, I don't have always wolf shirts. Sometimes I wear a bear shirt. And I said, bears eat the flock too. I said, you've got to understand, I'm just, I'm just coming from my, my spiritual nature. I've been trained to look for the signs. I'm trying to follow this pattern that God told me about holiness... Why are your signs always opposite of the definition God has given? I don't know. I'm not your judge. I can't see in your spirit. I don't know. I have a question. Help me to understand. And then there's this other bizarre behavior. Have you heard this one? The ladies in some of these assemblies, they are claiming that they're falling to the ground. I'm, I'm not making this up and they're having an orgasm. They're saying the Holy Spirit has stimulated them sexually, and they're having an orgasm. Hey, brethren, I got news for you. The Lord is not an adulterer. He does not molest other women. He is not promiscuous. Something's really wrong with that one with me. Because there's all this instruction about Sexual behavior as being the thing that profanes. Now just what bizarre behavior do we have to finally see that will convince us this is not the work of the Holy Spirit? What is it that we got to see? I don't know. Maybe maybe when we finally get temple prostitutes again. Maybe, maybe that will do I, I don't know. But it seems to me this instruction is pretty clear here. That's not holiness. That's not the holiness that God is about. Then it goes a little bit further. Verse 27, that's an interesting one. You shall not round off the side growths of your heads, nor harm the edges of your beard. The instruction to the sons of Israel, it says that holiness has something to do with your facial hair and looking like a man. Now, I am not anyone's judge here, and I'm not going to suggest to you, every one of you need to start growing beards, but if you have been coming to this assembly, you will note there are certain regular old-timers here. They have facial hair. Let me tell you something, brother. Having a beard doesn't make you holy. But maybe cutting it off and behaving like other men in the world, maybe that has something to do with not being holy. Because the world that we live in and the culture that we live in, did you know that it is an undercurrent? They consider, and I've faced this many times, I'm sure some of you can testify to the same, we live in a culture in which that some people think that if a man has a beard, he's a bum. And he's unholy. The very sign of the holy is regarded the other way. Unkept. Not groomed properly. It says, verse 28, You shall not make any cuts in your body for the dead. Nor make any tattoo marks on yourselves. I am the Lord. One of the most popular teen culture items going on today is to get a tattoo. And I'm not meaning like some sailor tattoo with an anchor and says, Mom. I'm talking about weird tattoos in weird places. The more bizarre, the more interesting. It's not the symbol of holiness. It's not. It's sending another message. Now, again, I'm not anyone's judge. I'm not going to judge. If one of you come in here and you show me your tattoo, I'm not going to say you're not holy. The God I serve is able to take incredibly sinful creatures and make them holy. I'm, I myself am one of them who can testify that that has happened. It goes on to say, again, it repeats, it says, You shall keep my Sabbaths, revere my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Where is the sanctuary of God now? Our new covenant faith, where is the sanctuary? Right here. I will revere the sanctuary here. You'll take care of yourself. You won't abuse yourself. The man who abuses himself is never called a holy man. Never. But the man who's healthy and complete... He's called holy. He can be called holy. And then we have some other interesting things here. Don't turn to mediums or spiritus. Do not seek them out to be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. Did you know that they're real? I don't mind kind of kind of maybe like they're kind of real. I mean they're real. People who do those tarot cards, that's real stuff. That's not make-believe. If you go and you consult that stuff and you call up on the, on the television, the advertisements, you call one of them spirit mediums, I guarantee you, you will be impressed out of your socks just how real that stuff is. You remember the King Saul? He got out of a little disfavor with the Lord. He wasn't sure quite what to do. The Lord wouldn't answer him. You know what he did? He went off to a medium. He went off to a medium who invoked the dead. Yeah, called up the dead. Guess who he wanted to talk to? Samuel the prophet. You know what? He really did talk to him. Now, Samuel the prophet was a little upset, and he said, Saul, what are you doing? What are you calling me up for? You won't listen to the Lord. Why would you listen to me? It was real. It really happened. And as a result, he lost his kingdom. That's real stuff. And you need to leave it alone. I guarantee you there's nothing about it that's holy. It is very unholy. Very opposed to what the Lord is about. Verse 32. These are miscellaneous things. You shall rise up before the great headed. And the honor of the agent, you shall revere your God. I am the Lord. Very interesting teaching on this Judaism teaches that when it refers to you shall rise up before the gray-headed, it's referring to a Torah teacher. That's what they teach. And by the way, there's a little bit to it, because the gray-headed man is the man who's committed his life to the service of God. And he's been doing it for so long that he's now changed. His, he's acquired the gray head. And it says, honor the aged. It doesn't really make any difference whether it's the Torah teacher or not, but I think that one thing that is for sure in that teaching, it says, if a man is older than you, he has gray hair and he is older than you, he's your elder, you better reverence him. I don't care if his theology is wrong. I don't care if he kind of misspoke. I don't care if he said something you don't like. You better reference him and revere him. And you better render to him the proper honor to him. Simple facts. There's one day you're going to be old and gray-headed and you're going to need other people to do the same to you. Because as you get older, the only thing that you have left is a lifetime of wisdom. You don't have any more strength. And it's desperately necessary for those that are younger than you to take advantage of that wisdom. Desperately needed that they need that wisdom. And so the scripture is given to us. It says, you will revere him. You will listen to him. It's your life that's at stake. He's got nothing to prove except to help you. My father used to give me a simple instruction I've shared with some close friends before that he used to tell me. He said, if a man comes and challenges you, Monty, he said, challenge him back. If he challenges you again, shut up and listen. He probably has something you need. If he doesn't challenge back, then he probably didn't believe in it himself. So you've kind of cut to the chase and you can move on with your life. But he always told me in conjunction with that, if the man's older than you, you don't challenge back, you listen. We are taught to listen to our grandfathers, listen to our uncles, those that are older than us. And as I've shared with you before, within the congregation, within even within the eldership, even elders do not have the authority to rebuke a man that is older than them, that is recognized as being the gray-headed man. You know, Brother John Trescott here is in our assembly, and, and, and we as the elders, if Brother John were to come and to say something that, that just really irritated us, we don't have the authority, even elders of this congregation, we don't have the authority to go to him and rebuke him says we still must honor his age, his gray-headedness, and his service to God, which is more than ours. And we must entreat him as a father with kindness and respect. And the Torah doesn't make any exceptions here with regard to this honoring. It says, with a stranger who resides with you in the land, you shall not do him wrong. The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as a native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were aliens of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. You want to prove that you're an unholy man? Mistreat someone who's different from you. Now we have the whole definition for racial bigotry and all forms of bigotry. You act like a bigot, you are not a holy man. I don't care what the difference is. I don't care how strange he is to you. You will not mistreat them. You will treat them as your own neighbor, as, as yourself. And you will remember there was a time when I was different to others and you will remember that you were treated graciously, and so you extend and you learn from it. These are things having to do with holiness. Verse 35, You shall do no wrong in judgments, in measurement of weight or capacity. You shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah, and a just hen. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall thus observe all my statutes, all my ordinances to do them, because I am the Lord. There's one more particular teaching that this passage gives us about the definition of holiness. It's in chapter 20. It's in the first few verses there. It's pretty standard. Let's review. You know, we've heard that we're to help the poor. We're not to mistreat our fellow man. We're not to be known for our hatred and vengeance. We're to love our neighbor. We're to do that which is active and good as opposed to uh, doing something improper. Then we have these miscellaneous issues, certain customs, certain appearances, those that would be honoring to others, ethical injunctions, things having to do with sexual relations, and then it comes down to this other interesting one about Molech. It says, chapter 20, verse 2, "'You shall also say to the sons of Israel, "'Any man from the sons of Israel or from the aliens sojourning in Israel,' who gives any of his offspring to Molech shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I will also set my face against the man and will cut him off from among his people because he has given some of his offspring to Molech so as to defile my sanctuary and to profane my holy name. What in the world is he talking about? If any of you have gone with me over to Israel, whenever we go to Armageddon, we go up to the, the great fortress of Megiddo. They have unearthed, and it's completely in its full display there for us. You can stand up there, and you can see an ancient altar to Molech. It's a big thing. Men usually walked up on top of the altar, and all the stones and the arrangement. and you can see this famous altar to Molech. It's still standing there as a symbol of when the children of Israel did this. What was it that was so grievous about Molech and the altar to Molech? Because it wasn't just animal sacrifice. They were sacrificing their children. They were killing their children. Killing their children. Brethren, I have news for you. There's not one spiritual difference between modern-day abortion today and the ancient ritual of offering up children to Molech. There's not one bit difference. Those children are just as dead. And it is not in any way, shape, or form a symbol of holiness. It is the reverse. With that said right there, we got an uphill battle on this business about holiness, don't we? So if you decide to go out into the world and you became a holy man, you begin to walk as a holy man, you're going to smell different from other men in the world. You're going to look different. You're going to sound different. You know what? The world's not going to like you. You are a reminder, an unbelievable reminder of God's holiness and certain judgment upon them. Now, you didn't go and judge them. But you, if you're like God, you'll be like his holiness and they'll see it. They'll sense it. They'll tell. And that's the reason why we live in a world where they're now coming to the point to where they literally hate us. They hate Christians. Why? They hate holiness, brethren. They hate it. And if you walk that walk, you live that life, you're holy even as the Lord is holy, then they're going to disregard you. See, you might as well get used to the idea that if you're going to be holy and walk holy, it doesn't mean everybody's going to like you. But it's best if you are. It is best. It's to your benefit, to your family's benefit, to your brethren's benefit, and those that you call your brethren. It's to all of our benefit. I, I benefit from every one of you walking holy before the Lord. If I walk holy before the Lord, you benefit. In the assembly, I guarantee you that the leaders of the assembly, if we fall down on this issue of holiness, great spiritual harm will come to you. I know, uh, the elders here in this congregation know, that if we do not walk holy before the Lord, we'll bring harm on you. And we know that if one of you is not holy in your behavior, you'll bring harm into the congregation too. So we all, all of us need to be holy before the Lord. All of us need to follow this teaching, this instruction, go by this example, and let us be careful to do it this way. Not our wholeness, but God's holiness is what we want. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the scripture. Thank you for giving clear instruction as to your very nature, your perfection, your completeness, your very essence. And Lord, we confess to you, we are but ashes and dirt. But Lord, you've instructed us to be holy like you, and we know that you do the great work of holiness and making us holy. But Lord, we are desperately in need of learning how not to profane ourselves. So we would ask God that by your Holy Spirit, you'd teach us, lead us, instruct us, point out to us the areas of our life, where that particular thing is, is profaning us. That's not, that's not who we are. That's not who we're supposed to be about. And Lord, that you would instruct us. Above all, Lord, I pray for our special protection that we'll not take on the characteristics of being gods, but that we'll imitate you, the one true God. That we'll not proclaim ourselves to be judges of other brethren, Just because we're not profaning ourselves, and we see another brother profaning himself, Lord, don't, don't let us go and try to bring others under subjection to us. We don't want others to imitate us. We want all men to imitate you, Lord. And we call all men to repentance to you because you're the one who can put holiness upon a man no matter what he's done, no matter what has happened you're able to make us clean and make us perfect and make us complete in you. So, Lord, we would ask that as you would teach us about your holiness and to be a holy congregation, that you would teach us to enjoy the life and the freedom that you've given to us so that we might be an encouragement and we might be living waters, clean waters for many, and that we might all drink from the same fountain of clean, pure waters. We thank you for this congregation, Lord. We thank you for their heart and their willingness to come and to serve, to know you. Lord, manifest yourself to them and reward them, Lord. Encourage them, strengthen us. We know, Lord, that we can't do this life without your strength. Without your guiding hand, we can't do it, Lord. No one is here representing that we can. We humble ourselves before you and ask for your assistance. And we do so in the name of your Son, our coming King, Yeshua. Amen. For more information about Lion and Lamb Ministries, call our office at 405-447-4429. Our address is post office box 720-968-Norman, Oklahoma, 73070. Our web address is www.lionlamb.net. Thank you.